This is the Garden Cinema Film Talk. We chat with filmmakers, actors, producers and film commentators about the art of film. We talk about the films they made, how they made them and the ones they'd like to make. This week, we speak to Angela Allen, who has worked on the film sets of some of Hollywood's most celebrated films, including The Third Man, The African Queen and The Dirty Dozen, for nearly 60 years, overseeing continuity, supervising scripts and advising directors. Well, it's uh, such a pleasure to meet you. And uh, Well, I, I gather you're a lawyer, aren't you, really, Well, I was profession? when I was young. I was at the bar. I used to practice in the courts with a wig and gown. And, yeah. And then I uh, gave that up and started a book publishing business. And that went very well and became a, a global book publishing business uh, producing guides to lawyers all over the world, the world's best lawyers, whether they're in Afghanistan or Siberia or China, anywhere. And we have a, the building was full of researchers who would be on the phone to lawyers all over the world. Wonderful. And that was successful. It was a bit dull, though, a bit <laughs> boring. Anyway, I sold that and I've now started the cinema. And well, I think you've made a very good job of it and you've, you know, it's all very nicely well, We put a lot of effort in. Well, you certainly have, you a can see attention. it. What a life in film you've had. Not many well, people can, ex can say they've been at the heart of filmmaking for so long. Well, I suppose so. In the, well, only thinking about it in a way now, I mean... When you make these films, you never know whether they, nobody ever knows if it's going to be a success or not. There you are, seeing all the shooting and getting involved in the editing. Surely I would have thought you get a pretty good idea whether this film is going to work, whether it's going to be a good film. At this age in my life, yes. But when I started, um, I was a junior, um, I trained at the Corder Studios. No, I mean, nobody ever knew, including the director. You always hope it was yeah. it's going to be a success, but it's an unknown quantity. Well, how, how involved did you get with the editing in the cutting room? Well, I was quite lucky that on The Third Man, I was on the second unit, and then when we came back to England, um, I used to take notes in the theatre with Carol and um, didn't ever have, um, you know, torches and things. I, oh, trim, trim, which, which, which shocked it up. It was a bit of guesswork. And I'd be writing in the dark in my either bits of shorthand and then I'd have to type it all up for the editor and then, say, two nights later, he'd want to see it all, you know, the recuts. So I considered Carol my teacher because it was fascinating to see a sequence cut one way, then you trim it up, then you say, he'd say, no, overlay the line on that person or that needs to be shorter, I don't want that shot. 
And he had an incredible memory, I mean, for... And Carol Reed would be heavily involved in editing, wouldn't Oh, he? completely, yes, yes. I mean, he'd be there every day and giving the orders. And his editor, well, was really... He was an Austrian, Os, Oswald Hafenrichter. Um, no, no, completely under Carol's rule and domination. So he was, in effect, the editor? Yes. Yeah. Well, most directors... Not all, but yes. most were, yes. It was their film, and the, I mean, the editor put it together, and obviously some editors were much more imaginative than others. Yes. But with Carol, yes, very much so. He. Um, well, I think in Hollywood, the tradition was more that the, edit, the, the director would move on to the next project, the studio project, and the, and the woman would then, usually a woman, would take over the editing. Uh, yes, but then in Hollywood too, the it was the um, producer. I Who think the, the director was allowed his first cut, yes. but after that, the then it was the producers took over, and you know they could change it vastly, and it wouldn't be the film yeah. the director had imagined no, in the no, first place. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. So, when you saw the the final cut, or at least as the editing progressed, did it become much more evident that this film was going to work or not? Later on, when I did go out to Hollywood and there was the f famous woman editor at MGM, Margaret Booth, oh, my goodness, could she be lethal with people's films? I took out The Night of the Iguana... And I sat in there with her to to see it because the producer, Ray Stark, at that point was doing the stage show of Funny Girl. But oh, she seemed to like me and said, oh, we'll stay in and watch yes. this person's film. And I said, well, you know, I'm not was nothing to do with it and perhaps he wouldn't like it. No, it's and my God, the criticisms, I thought, poor man, when he comes in, <laughs> I don't think I'd want to be him. She was, you know, um, very, very bossy and, and difficult. <laughs> she would create a new film out of the rushes, would she? Completely different from the... Well, I wouldn't say... She, well, she may have gone back to rushes, oh, but... Oh, she took the, the cut that But the you see, cut. as the head editor as she was at, yeah. at MGM, and then Ray Stark took her on as his supervising editor. For instance, she would say to me, or oh, we could put a close-up in there, well, having been the script girl on it, I said, well, I'm afraid we can't because we haven't got a close-up, which was fine. <laughs> yeah. So that... But the producer used to say to me, Ray Stark, put it down. I said, we haven't got a close-up, Ray. Put it down. But he'd want one specially shot, would he? No. no. I mean, he was thought he was being an editor, so I just used to ignore it. But, um, you know, at least with her, if I said, well, you haven't got the shot. But in certain instances, in big-budget films at times, yes, of course, they went back to do reshoots if, if the actors or was still available or whatever. And the fashion today appears to be that you make the film, you cut it, and then sort of months later you're back on the reshoots or reshooting the ending or whatever you're shooting. I mean, 
And the over-coverage today is unbelievable. Oh, is that so? Because mm. I notice you've said that um, Aldrich coverage you thought was excessive. Well, it was. I mean, we had... You, we used to do in England numerical slates starting at one. Yeah. And I'd never, ever got to well over 2,000. Multiply that by three because we always had three cameras, even for a close-up of somebody saying, oh. Um, he, it was, no, it was the old Hollywood technique of um, coverage so that producers could re-edit a film so it would be... They used to call it master shot, the long shot. Then they come in a bit closer and then a bit closer and then over shoulders, then close-ups and all those things. Now, when I worked, started with John Houston, he was very different. He did not subscribe to that um, formula and he knew what he wanted and he would never make the actors play a whole, say, three-minute scene in a long shot where you'd only use five ten seconds so he knew he knew what he and, wanted and, well yes he and people like billy wilder would not shoot all that because they didn't want their film recut by i think they the called studio. it edited, editing in the camera well up to a point you know but i mean and with houston now we never went like today Two and three hours when you finish the film, it's it's four or five hours long for a film that can only run in the cinemas two hours. No, in, you, you always need twenty minutes or half an hour to trim out eventually for the for the final version. But today, the overshooting. Well, today is it's video, isn't it? So um, yes, they it's think cheaper, they think quicker. it's cheaper because you're not paying for Processing. for it to be printed. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but it shows to me yeah. that you don't, as the director, have a truly clear view of what you want. Of the final product, yeah. yeah. Well, I think um, Hitchcock was always known for having a very clear view of his, the exact edit of the final film. Yes, he was, and I knew, you know, one of his... Well, she was his script girl once, and then, but she went to the States with him as his assistant. Oh, no, he... He certainly wouldn't um, overcover it. No, yeah. No, no. So, tell me about some of the directors you uh, worked for. Obviously, Houston was the main one, and late, in later life, it was um, Zeffirelli. Zeffirelli, wasn't it? Franco Zeffirelli. Yes, you couldn't find a bigger contrast. Yes. Um, um, Franco's first love, I think, really is opera, or uh -huh. was, shall we put it that way. Um, Did that show in his directing? Not so much in the... Well, at times, but Franco was a very flamboyant yeah. um, personality. But he had a great... He did have a great visual sense. And, you know, he started life as a, um, a designer and doing costumes and yeah. sets. And he certainly knew um, how he wanted people costumed. It was new... Wouldn't be a, a costume designer brings down an artist and says that's it. Yeah. Well, I learned that about him because I'd say, "Have you seen so and so?" And he'd be, "Oh, shut up!" I said, "Well, have you or haven't you?" 
then he'd moan and groan and he'd go and look and then I'd hear the screams in the background because he wanted it all changed and he didn't like it. And then, oh, I got, yes, I got you, you know, used to him. I mean, I loved him, but he was, oh, it could be difficult. He could say, so-and-so's going to be there. And I said, don't be ridiculous. How could... One day with, on not a good film with Elizabeth Taylor, he said, turn that way, and she shouted back to me, but I turned the other way, didn't I? I said, yes, match with him. And then it was, put her there. I said, well, you'd never know whether she was wearing a red dress or she could have the red dress in the long shot and a white dress in the close-up, because you wouldn't notice, would you? And then he could start screaming all the time. Oh, shut up. <laughs> I mean, so he was a, you know, but uh, because he was very artistic and... And, and totally different um, type of thing. And I used to say, well, the best thing is, thank God if we're doing Shakespeare, because you cannot change the lines. Because <laughs> he fancied himself a bit as a writer and say, well, in Italian. I said, but we're not doing it in Italian. And less is more. <laughs> he was, I mean, you know. Completely. So you really stood up to the directors? Well, the... I did, but I, you know, not everybody does. Well, and not everybody would want me to. I mean, John who, appreciated Who appreciated it. that most? Huh? Which of them appreciated that most? Well, I suppose, in a way, Houston did, because if, sort of, we'll put it this way, money producers came and they'd say, oh, what are you going to do? And he'd say... I think I'm going to go through it all with you. Go and ask her; she knows what I'm doing. And um, and I and I could say to him when you were shooting a shot and after a take, well, that wasn't very good, or it was, you know, too long, or somebody in the background was chewing a piece of straw, which I didn't expect him to notice. And you know, or that was too long, etc. Or we need another close-up, John, or we need this, or we need that. And, you know, nine times out of ten, he would he yeah. would agree with it. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Tell me something, uh, another question. Um, it would be fascinating to have your view on the, the post-war auteur theory that came from France, that the, the director was the key man and a director's film was his film or her film... And that's who counted. Um, the whole auteur theory. I wondered if you'd had views on that. Well, I do think it's a director's medium. Yeah. Um, and I do think that th 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 they were probably right about that because... Yeah. Um, You'd seen it. You know, on the stage, the director is paramount. Yeah. I mean, and most producers... If they edit, of course, then they're producing and ed filming and editing. Yes, but if they'd ever been, shall we put it this way, an editor and really learnt that, learnt their trade, but they weren't. They it was always giving orders to other people. Um, but I do think it's a director's medium. I really do because, well, and if you bring them on, and it is very funny because you know when films are getting going, and it hasn't really changed. I don't think. Um, the producer or the money approaches a particular director who says, oh, yes, I really, oh, yes, I really love the script. Oh, it's wonderful. And as I said, 
the moment they'd signed the contract, well, now, now I need to bring my own writer on. And it's, you know, that's why you get so many, you know, you have rewrites and rewrites and rewrites. Mm. So, as you said in some of your interviews, you said that the important thing is to study the script in an intelligent way, have an intelligent understanding of the script. And so you'd see the script, whether it's the shooting script or something even earlier. Oh, much earlier, yes. And then the director comes and begins the shooting. In a sense, what you're saying is that one director would take a script and produce one film, another director with the same script, he would then deliver a film that's very different from the other one. Oh, I think so, yes. I think um, they're of the sort of better, well, not if you want to say that word, better directors, they have a style in a way, rather like a painter, you can recognise their style. I mean, the style, say, of Billy Wilder and John Huston are different. One uses a much more mobile camera. Um, And if you look at Carol Reed's films, they were quite staccato, um, with shorter cuts, although the scene did play. So it would, you know, if you put two directors on a film, I think same you'll script, get, same get a, script. I think you'll get a probably different rather film. different version. Yeah, yeah. And you saw that happening. Well, you, yes, except that um, only in one on one occasion when I was on the film called The World of Susie Wong, where we changed the director, and it started with Jean Negulesco, and then. Ray Stark fired him in a quite, I think, objectionable way and brought on um, another director. And then we did go back and we reshot. So that was the only time I've been on where, um, you know, we've changed the director um, because the producer didn't like him or didn't. That was the only one where we actually changed directors. And you saw a big difference, did you? Well, at that point, on that particular film, The World of Susie Wong, we also changed the leading lady as well. So, yes, it was, um, you know... A new um, film, yeah. ...quite different um, styles, but the way of firing the first director was very Hollywood and very nasty, I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... The other key figure, of course, is the producer. And um, you've obviously worked with dozens of different producers. Well, I didn't normally have to work with the producers. I mean, they just come down on the set or they speak to you at the beginning or, you know, make out they can do this and that. Did you get get to know them, any of them, well? Well, I (laughs) I, um, met... A quite famous one, David O. Selznick. Um, well, when John Huston was at one stage going to make a farewell to arms, and um, he got fired before we started. I got on with Selznick, but then I'd met him um, before when we did Beat the Devil because his wife, Jennifer Jones, was, but he was only a husband then. But he was, I'll never forget, we were in Rome and the 
you know, they needed the script um, in those days, mimeographed, as they said. And the only place open was the Vatican. <laughs> and somebody knew somebody in the Vatican. And of course, it comes back with missing pages and upside down and David. And I said, it's done by the Pope, isn't it? You can't complain, you see. And anyway, it was nothing to do with him. Um, but it was quite funny, you know. He, he would have exploded, but um, if it had been him. Because, of course, you, you've no doubt heard. And I, I, I'd met a couple of his secretaries. Literally, you know, they published books of his memos. And we used to get a memo in Houston and say to me... <laughs> I was having to act as his secretary a bit because he was waiting for a new one. And you'd get the envelope would be sent. John would say, what is it? I said, hold on, let me just read the... You know, we'd have 16 pages on the fact that Jennifer Jones's toilet paper was to be pink, which was, you know, nothing what, to do Selznick with the director. from Selznick himself? Hmm? From Selznick? Oh, yes. Oh, well, we did never get anything less than 10 or 16 pages for everything, you see. So I'd say, it's pink toilet paper. Oh, you know, so we'd been there. But, oh, yes, we'd get you'd get these members. The poor secretaries used to go in there and take dictation for four or five hours. One would go out and another one would come in. And... I mean, there there are published um, books of his memos. Oh, yes, that's what he was famous for. Uh, <coughs> what are the notable produ Stark, producers that you you mm. admired? Take take the producers you most admired. I'm having a hard time. <laughs> um, directors, I could say yes, I admired, yeah. but um, you know, Ray Stark was. He'd been, most of them had been agents before they became producers. And on the whole, I would say they weren't necessarily the nicest of people. Oh, I think, I mean, I never had to work for him when any of us sort of said good afternoon, but was Corder. Yes, Corder was a true producer because, A, he'd been a director. He'd established the company and he had tremendous charm. Well, he was Hungarian, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and what about Balkan? Well, I never, I never mm. worked at Ealing, so I, oh, I know I nothing about those. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Corder has a reputation. What about Spiegel, though? Sam. Oh, Sam. Oh, well, yes. Sam, I will say for Sam, no, as a producer, yes, he was probably the most intelligent producer, um, but he was a bit of a crook too, you know. And he, when he took African Queen, I was having to work after the film as his secretary and we were driving to the airport to put him on the plane and I'd written all the checks, like two pounds for the gas bill and... Why? I said, well, I was so naive anyway. I didn't know. I said, well, I think if you don't pay it, you they'll cut it off. <laughs> and I'd written all the checks for the people, two pounds for the greengrocer or whatever, crafty ones, you <laughs> see, takes it from me. Then he gets out at the airport, hands me back the portfolio. When he's gone inside the airport, I open it up. Half the checks aren't signed. 
that was Spiegel because he used he was a gambler, not not a drinker, a gambler, he, and for want of a better word, a, a sort of whoremonger, if you like. But I used to get there. I was naive, and he'd say, "When did you arrive?" And I'd just seen somebody leave, so I'd say. No, 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 just this minute I got here, you see. So I never <laughs> had to see. He didn't want me to ever see the ladies, the different one probably every day. But anyway. Um, well, he, he wouldn't have women in, in off the streets, though, would he? No, no. no. He'd, pick, he'd have picked them up, I yeah. presume, at Laissez. He seemed to go to Les Ambassadeurs every night. Yeah. But I mean, listen, he might have no idea. I mean, yeah, you didn't all, ask. Then, well, or he may have picked them up. I, or your, you know, cool yeah. girls. I suppose they would have been. Yeah. Um, but he, as a producer, I would say he was most definitely the knowledge one. He was the one he would argue with Houston on, on an artistic, not not yeah. the money. You know, this doesn't work, John. Do this, and he he was right because the ending. Oh, I can remember hearing them shouting at each other about the ending, which was being rewritten or, you know, things like that. But he, I would have said, he was definitely the most intelligent producer. Um, And, you know, years later, I literally bumped into him on the street in Madrid, and he was, you know, very friendly and... You know, no, no, you know, it was fine because he was rich by then when he got yeah. with David Lean. Yeah, I mean, yeah. David Lean gave him a, a very hard time. I mean, I think those two used to scream at each Did they? other. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, interesting. Yeah. No, he sounded uh, a very interesting character. Oh, he certainly was. Uh, well, ah, on the film, he phoned me. I, this is again very funny. Now, with my credit, yes. Now, it's S.P. Eagle. That's right. E-A... Yes, friend. Yes, Sam, I can spell eagle. Because, you see... S.P. Eagle. And I think African Queen was the last under that name, wasn't it? has gone back to Spiegel now. But he said, you see, I mean, Spiegel, I said, yes, means mirror. But... They, they they won't understand, you see. I thought, what you talking about? You know, you've made other films. And, but he had financial problems, I think. From, oh, yes. I mean, John Wolfe paid for the film, don't kid yourself. But um, then it made money. So he, from then on, he was... Under his own name. Yes. So <laughs> we went back to... But, but definitely it was Spiegel on... I mean, it was... S.P. Eagle on the original African one, Queen. and then it's mm. gone back to Spiegel. Um, I see. Now, now yeah. that's on the new copies. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh well, tell us then about um, some of the actors you've uh, worked with, and uh, and what what is it that really makes a great film actor compared to say actors on stage? Oh, I think it's purely a question of chemistry in a way that certain actors and faces, you know, the camera loves them. Um, And that's what makes them, really. Um, And in a way, I mean, from the old classical actors, I mean, 
I mean, for instance, if you'd put a Donald Wolfit on the screen, well, you could if you wanted him to give you a hammy performance, which I think I would. I was on um, Charge of the Light Brigade. I think we had a scene with Donald Wolfit. But then, you know, you wanted him to be hammy. But it was a different style of acting on the stage, also projecting um, your voice, which, of course, you don't need to do because um, you have microphones, etc. So, um, well, I suppose I did work with a lot of big Hollywood stars, you know, from Orson Welles, who was bigger, larger than life. Although, I mean, I remember I was on the second unit in the, in the Prata, but where he walks towards the wheel... That shot, that was his first. Then he disappeared, and they had to chase him all around Europe. And then, you know, his really only big dialogue scene is on the wheel. Um, Otherwise, he's in the tunnels running around. He's running out. Oh, yes, but then there is the funny story of... Well, no, it's true. When everybody was down the sewers... And he was due to go down to do a close-up. And he saw the actors and the crew eating their bacon sandwiches or whatever. And he went mad. They just about got the close-up. And he refused to ever go down. That's why they had to build the sewers back in England. Because he would not go down again. All the other actors did. You know, Joseph Cotton, Trevor, of course, and... So, was the, do you think this was some personal neurosis, or was there some? No, well, it, 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 you know, as American, how can they be eating in a sewer? Actually, where it, it was, they've changed it. I think in the last few years, it was actually the where the river or something comes into the sewer. The big, the big, the big thing there. But no, it just won't go down again. And he was very elusive. I mean, they had a terrible time. I mean, he'd when he arrived, and then he'd fly off, and then they'd send people around. So, you know, somebody get to Rome, then he's gone back to Paris. Then. And, you know, he was very, very naughty in the sense, I know Guy Hamilton, who was Carol's protégé, actually, who was the assistant director, was furious in, in later years when Orson was saying that he wrote and directed it. No, he most certainly didn't. I think we'll give him the... It came out of his mouth... Um, the cuckoo clock line, you know, because he was messing about and hadn't well, that, really learnt the, 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 that the, cuckoo, the written scene. That cuckoo clock the cuckoo line turn. about the Swiss is actually taken from uh, Whistler's lecture in the, about the 1890s. Yeah, I was saying he took it, but it wasn't, you know, he just at that point was not bothering to learn his Graham Greene lines, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. But the original... Version of that was James Whistler, the painter, when he gave his uh, ten o'clock lectures in London, and he said exactly that. And and Orson Welles either read that, of course, or he must have it. done. Yes, yeah. it was. You know, it came out of his mouth, and and I can remember visiting that, going on that set when they were shooting, and I could see Paul Carroll was having a difficult time with him. He was being very difficult. Um, and yet it was such a brilliant film. Well, it was, but it's that's my favorite, down to Carol. It's my favourite film. Yes, one. it's down to Carol. I've got yeah. somebody else, um, Dan Patterson, who does Mock the Week. 
I gave him a couple of posters or something because he loves it. I'm going to tell him he's got to come here and see it. Um, no, it's, it's I think brilliant. Carol made, I do think Carol made a brilliant film he and did. I don't feel that yeah. the British have acknowledged Carol's contribution to cinema as much as David's, you know, which was also, of course, great, but, you know. Well, certainly that is a superb film. Were you there when they um, discovered the music in the, the zither player? Oh, I'll tell you, that that was Guy. They, 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 Carol and Guy were in Grinsing, I think, in, um, you know, one of the cafes. In the cafe there. And I heard... You know, and the, then the, the Harry Lyme thing. The, well, no, he, he was just playing yeah. his zither, and then Guy went and found him again, and found where he lived, and brought him to Carol and um, recorded it. And of course, Selznick didn't want that music. Oh no, no, no! It was you. You, you can't possibly have the zither music. Oh, I think it was supposed to have. I don't know if it was Muir Matheson or somebody else, but anyway. It was Carol who insisted. Yeah, well. And then, and then Carus came and I think stayed at Carol's home. Not, not Carus didn't speak a word of English. Carol didn't speak a word of German. But they seemed to yeah. have got on, and yes. um, you know, and, and what, what, is it, what a triumph! And the tune they heard him playing in the cafe—that was the same tune. I think probably, but I don't know. But you know, um, may have been, yeah. may, may even be a sort of folk song of some sort. I'm yeah. sure it was. Because I think he's credited with the as the composer of it. Yes, I think play. he was. Well, yeah. Yes, because I think it was. You know, could have been, a folk, could have been a folk song. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you make change because it's a huge contribution to the film oh it is i mean <laughs> it's well and that shows how clever carol was you know and he stood and, up to selznick thank god and and even corder i think you know oh. um, but corder was more he liked carol anyway i mean yeah. carol i think was in well i, I can't think who, who produced did Decorder to produce Odd Man Out as well. I can't no, remember. No, I think it's. I think it may have been somebody else. But anyway, you know, Corder always picked the best. He picked Carol. He picked David. He gave. You, you know, he gave Mr. Winston Churchill a job. He was. They never used any of the scripts, but to give him an income. Clever and man. the reason yeah. Corder got. And knighthood was not for film work. It was for during the war. There was a, there's a very interesting documentary about it, which I saw a couple of years ago, I think, somebody at the BFI. It was for his war work because the spies were put into the film offices to find out what was going on, and that's what he really got his knighthood for, because of course he'd been divorced, and in those days you couldn't be yeah. divorced and get a knighthood, but no, it was for his yeah. Churchill organised that for his for his <laughs> war work. <laughs> no, I mean, Corder was well, the, the, the trio, the brothers, I used to get lift home with Vincent, who was the art director. They were, you know, Completely different, I feel, to, you know, a lot of the others. And and then Zolly was, was the, was the, became, the, well, they, the two of them had directed, but then Zolly, you know, stayed directing. But they were quite close as brothers, too. 
Yeah. He he made that f South African film. Yes, yeah, Zolid, Zolid. Oh yes, yeah. um, the, 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 about apartheid. Yes, the early days of apartheid. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And they they made Four Feathers, the original Four Feathers. Ah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about another interesting film. One of the later ones. Well, not that late sixties. Um, the last film of Marilyn Monroe. The Misfits. Yeah, because that's fascinating. You had Arthur Miller on set and you had his wife on set and you had all the problems going on. That must have been fascinating. Yes. And you had John Huston, your favourite director. Well, yeah, I mean, the reason... Um, Arthur had written the short story when he was waiting for a divorce from his first wife. Oh, is that so? Yes, while he was waiting in um, Reno to write the short story. And then, I can't remember, I don't know. Oh, and then his great friend, Frank, um, was, was, a, was in publishing at Random House. And to be the producer who was well, I liked Frank he was he was um a very nice man and um they approached John um and then when we started in in Reno um as was John's won't um the poor writer had to rewrite everything every day, rewriting every scene. But in most cases, in the, very often in the end, sometimes I'd be known to throw the... I said, I can't stand it any longer. There's the pencil, there's the paper, write it yourself, John. But, you know, because that's where you could... But not, he would not pick up the pencil with Arthur. So poor Arthur's up there rewriting, 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 and saying to me, I can't think of another idea. They had a secretary, but she wasn't... Uh, I didn't quite when, know the situation. When they had to rewrite, so I finished up having to type all the scripts. So for when <laughs> John Houston decided it needed a rewrite, um, oh well, it would be all the time, you know. That now this scene doesn't work. Now Arthur, and they'd have that discussion, and then Arthur be sent up to rewrite. And no sooner I'd done thirty pages, John's going, oh, and he never liked anything rubbing out. So I'm doing it. They didn't have computers in those days. Oh, yes. So I, but the secretary's it's a secretary's job. Yeah. It's not mine, but no. I finished up having to do to work. And know, would would, would John Arthur. Houston <laughs> would he tell Arthur Miller what he wanted on the rewrite, or would he just tell him this isn't working? Oh, I'm sure that you know. I wasn't there for for their personal. You know, he would tell him what he wanted or what he felt it should be, and then, you know, and then it would, you know, so it would go on. But as he had. Great respect for Arthur as a writer. He wouldn't pick up the pencil, you know. And it was, oh, it was a film, probably one of the most difficult because she was so difficult. And also the marriage. I was naive enough but didn't quite know that um, it was breaking up really from the very beginning, you know. Um, and it got steadily worse. And then she, of course, accused one day she was being particularly difficult and Eli Wallach picked her up on it and she said, oh, she's putting on a... F me, I... Oh, 
putting on a phony English accent. And Eli said, don't be stupid, she is English. No, she's not. <laughs> I said, Eli, little things I don't give a damn, you know. And then I heard later, um, when we thought, that John said, said to me, oh, yes, well, she's decided you're having an affair with Arthur. So I said, well, I'd love to know if I'm enjoying it. If that, was, if that, that would be fascinating. If he's spending 24 hours of the day, when do I ever see him? But, but, no, no, she was. But you see, there's a more appeared in documentaries. There's, I think one hasn't come out over here, but it has, I think, in America. The real person that none of them seemed to want to talk about was Paula Strasberg, who really... Um, made her as impossible as she was on the last... And she was always on set, wasn't she? Oh, God. Yeah, but then she dominated her. And, she, and after a take, if, if, if Houston said printed, Marilyn wouldn't look at John. Ah. She'd look at Madam. And um, if Madam wanted... And she, Paula, sort of didn't talk to anybody else because we were all beneath her. Yeah. And Arthur obviously couldn't stand her. And then, you know, he was, I discovered later, you know, the, <laughs> when the phone rang one day and I picked it up and it was, I haven't got the key. So I thought he was in the Beverly Hills Hotel. I said, I thought, well, I know you're helpless, Arthur, at times. I said, dear, you just go to the desk and they do know who you are. They'll give you another key. And he had to admit to me that he wasn't there. He didn't move down. He was staying with the producer, Frank. Well, Frank's gone. Just sit there in the coffee shop and he'll probably turn up. But I've no idea where Frank's gone. He's left the studio. So, um, so Paula Strasberg and, and Marilyn were like this oh, together. Yes, yes. And and divorced from the rest of the crew. Oh yes. Separate. Oh yeah. Even from Arthur Miller. Oh yes. She she obviously hated. I'm sure um, Paula. I'm sure hated Arthur. Mm. Like who's in? Who's... He certainly hated her because you see, don't forget, she'd made the Prince and the Showgirl, and I think. And driven everybody mad. I mean, Olivier couldn't stand her, no. couldn't stand Marilyn Well, and bad manners, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's... Terrible story, really. Look, I, I'll say it again. Marilyn, on screen, and some the best film she ever made was Some Like It Hot under Billy Wilder, but yeah. she nearly drove him, you know, to... He called John up. He said, God, it shouldn't happen to you. I'm on my knees. You know, because they were miles over schedule and she never could remember a line, etc., etc. And it appears on the last year, I think I caught a documentary, and it was on the last year of her life that they got, I think they got all the information from the psychiatrist. She'd been, he was obviously dead by then. Um, no, Marilyn, by nature, was a prostitute or... I'm not going to go as high as saying a courtesan, but that was actually her nature, I think. And yes, she had a certain amount of talent, and certainly she photographed the camera, loved her. And, you know, 
she obviously did have a, a talent from somebody who'd never, you know, in gentlemen for blonde singing and stuff. But I mean, I'm not going. You know, everybody now in this women's movement says to me, "Well, didn't you feel sorry for her?" And no, I don't. She had the opportunities which many, many women never had. Yeah, yeah. Except she had such a terrible childhood. That was well. So so have lots of people. So have many. You know, poverty and yeah, and abuse. Well, it would be interesting. Arthur Miller somehow managed to stay with her for what about ten years, seven no, years? No, no, no. no. How, I think it was probably three or four, six years. I think yeah. he discovered. It seems he wrote, and that's what she found that he. I think, and what was in a way interesting on the Misfits, as I said. He wrote the story while he was waiting for, yeah. <laughs> for his first divorce, and, and we and filmed we're, it while he was waiting and, for and, second. And, and, we're, and we're getting a second one yeah. at the end of the yeah. film. Yes. Oh dear, <laughs> you've got so many stories to tell. I'm amazed you haven't written a book. Oh, everybody's been asking yeah. me to, and I've I started well trying to, and well, and somebody else has been nagging me, and I, you know, I really don't know. If I have the talent, you know, as I said, if if I was going to be a writer, you know, I think I'd have done it. Yes, we can all write letters and and and, and things, but it's I think quite hard. I'm trying, but I, I, every day now, well, for the last year, I had a minor medical thing on my leg, but it's been an excuse. Um, you know, every day I get up, I say I'm going to sit at the computer and try yeah. and... Did you keep do... any diaries at all? Well, only like diaries, like said you... where I was and things, yeah. which is quite helpful. Have you got them? Yes, I've got them all. The, Can well, the, you... There were a couple, a few missing because yeah. I guess well, I lost them on... Yeah, my, that's you know, inevitable. Moving home, probably but lost a few. Can't but... you, I'm, what I'm thinking is because you've got such a wonderful memory... <laughs> you remember things, and that's the key to remember them. Any anyone can come along and improve the prose or whatever, but you've got the memory. You've well, got, that's what they say. You've yes. got the memory. It may be easier for you. You just get a tape recorder, and every day you have your diaries there because it takes you. Uh, well, yes, going takes back you to some, going, yes, starting at the beginning, and the thing because I've done it myself, and. Your memory comes, You all the connections come as you go forward from one diary to the next. And if you just dictated it and then handed it over to a publisher, they would make it, they'd type it up, they'd do everything. Well, up to, well, you know, you, you've been in that game, but, you know, somebody, well, it was somebody in Women in Film who's got quite an interesting documentary, Reve, Reve, um, Revelius. Um, the, the the artist out at the moment that one, huh? Drawn to war. Yes, it was about uh, and you know she I, I knew her from sort of BAFTA and she'd come around nagging and she got hold of a of an agent and, and I met with him and I showed him what I had written and he said it 
it doesn't have your voice, you know. Um, and I think I was, well, I, I think consciously or unconsciously, I was thinking, you know, I know to sell anything today, it has to be a kind of celebrity, so the more names you can drop in. But he said, I don't feel it's well, you so that's much. That's right. Well, well I, I understand exactly what he means. He's right. Well, what know. I'd suggest is that you, the diaries just remind you of mm. things and, and, and one memory leads to another. And But it is easier when people ask you questions, then, you know, it comes back, you know, more clearly than if you're sitting there on your own thinking. But writing, but if you, if you dictate, mm. and if you dictate it not as what you remember of other people. No, of yourself. But dictate it as your story, how you felt, from day to day to day, right through the 30s and the 40s, how you Not felt. Not the 30s, can't go back well, that far, Well, right, can't go back that far. Don't you take me even further back. Well, wherever you want to go, because you were born in... 29. 29. Well, so was, a 30s a bit, bit too close. I mean, I was a child. Yeah, but that's why it's a biography. So <laughs> you, you go back to your parents and you dictate it as your story. Not a story about uh, John Houston or anyone else, it's you. And uh, it would be a fascinating book. But if you're dictating in your own voice, then it is your voice. And it is you about yourself. And it, they could take it. They could always get somebody to do some editing and all the rest of it. But you'd have the bare bones and you'd get this wonderful book out. And well, within... yes, of course, one would need an editor to yeah. actually put it into order, yes. You'd get an editor and they may even get a writer to... Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, if you agreed, you may say, no, no, it's perfect yes. as it is, no. it's up to you. <laughs> no, that I wouldn't. <laughs> but I think, I think you'd produce a wonderful book and um, you'd have a bestseller and you'd love it. And you'd enjoy doing it, and you'd enjoy going on an author's tour where you... Oh, oh yes, oh, that side of it would it. be lovely, but we're a little far ahead. We haven't and, written it. And for film, film history, you've got a wonderful historical book which will be in all the libraries. And people, if they're looking up any director, they'll pick up your book and they'll see what you say. So I think it would be a great loss to the whole... To the whole world, and not only of the industry, but of people interested in film, be a big loss if you don't do it. No, I, I would do it and do it now. Yeah, if you mean while I'm still here? As they well, as we're all listen. I'm eighty. I'm not going to live forever. We no, all, it's like me. I mean, I I feel very grateful. I'm still here. That's right. So, <coughs> do it while you can. I would say, you have a duty to do it. Right, sir. <laughs> I still don't even know your surname. Michael, I'm told, is, is your name, but you do have a surname. What Chambers, is... Chambers. Oh, it is your... So that when I saw outside Chambers... Chambers pa... Oh, that was the old business. I sold it. That should be removed now. No, but that's your name, Chambers, yeah. yes. And my father, Jack, was a documentary film director. Oh. In what... the 30s and 40s. What was his name? Jack, Jack Chambers. Chambers. But what did he make his documentaries on? Oh, all sorts, all sorts of things. But he worked, he worked with that group of documentary filmmakers in the thirties. What like um, Grierson, Grierson, Paul Rother, okay. mm. people like this. Yes, and well. um, Cavalcanti. Yes, a friend of his. So, this group of people—it was a small group—and they made some great documentaries. And did you always want to sort of? Go well, into I got film or... I got sidetracked into the law and then into publishing books. 
Are you now, still publishing? No, I sold the business. So now what I want to do, a cinema, and now I want to start making some films. As a producer? Yeah. Well, I think that's wonderful. Yes, why not? Yeah, so there we are. Just a, It's just a bit of fun. I'll like, experiment and see how it goes. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Well, why not? This was the Garden Cinema Film Talk. You can find out more about the cinema screenings and seasons on our website, thegardencinema.co.uk, and follow us, send us comments and feedback on our social media, at The Garden Cinema. Thank you for listening.